The children here have gone downstairs for their ministry parallel to what's going on here. If you're watching this at home uh, with your family, parents use your discretion about, about how you think you want to uh, deal with this. Uh, it, it's not as if this is going to be an X-rated sermon, but I'm obviously talking about topics that you, you may or may not uh, want your children to, uh, to hear in this particular way. So I, I give you that uh, warning and disclaimer up front as well. We may not be living in the best of times or the worst of times, but uh, we're definitely living in strange times, right? Uh, we, all, we all understand that pretty clearly. Um, the fact that I'm preaching to a congregation with masks on and I just took mine off, tells me these are unusual times. Um, this is not, not the way we've normally done it, nor the way that we would like to do it. So uh, they are strange times in terms of the pandemic and the things we have to do to care for one another in response to that. But that's not the strangest aspect of our times. Who would have thought that in our lifetime we would be debating what it means to be male or female? And in fact, debating whether, whether we could change that. These are strange times. Now, you need to understand that those ideas that I've just alluded to are not just ideas out there um, that nobody in, in your experience would be, would be dealing with. In fact, I'm trying to find my notes here. Okay, I think I got it straight. You're probably aware that there's been major change in the content of the um, health curriculum, the sex ed part of that in particular in Ontario. And so I, r- rather than just alluding to that, I want to read you actual words from the, the curriculum and the instructions for teachers in the public schools of Ontario. At least by the time students reach grade eight, teachers are supposed to communicate this kind of thing to them. So these are are prompts that teachers need to understand. So here's one, one of the things that teachers are supposed to communicate by the time kids reach grade eight is this, to demonstrate an understanding of gender identity For example, male, female, two-spirit, and transgender, and an understanding of gender expression and of sexual orientation. For example, heterosexual, gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, and to identify factors that can help individuals of all identities and orientations develop a positive self concept. In other words, teachers in Ontario are responsible to help their students affirm 
all those representative examples of choice of gender identity, gender expression, or sexual orientation. So here's a teacher prompt, what a teacher might say to the students. Gender identity refers to a person's internal sense or feeling of being a woman, a man, both, neither, or anywhere on the gender spectrum, which may or may not be the same as the person's birth assigned sex. It is different from and does not determine a person's sexual orientation. Sexual orientation refers to a person's sense of sexual attraction to people of the same or different sex. It is essential to treat people of all sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions with respect and acceptance. Gender expression refers to how you demonstrate your gender through the ways you act, dress, and behave, and the pronouns you choose to use in reference to yourself. Gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation are connected to the way you see yourself and to your interactions with others. Understanding and accepting your gender identity and your sexual orientation can have a strong impact on the development of your self-concept. Young people can develop positively if they understand their gender identity and their sexual orientation, and if these are respected by themselves, their family, and their community. And then the teacher asks, what kind of support do people need to help them understand their gender identity and their sexual orientation? And then it, the, the curriculum seeks a response to be generated by the teacher from the students to say it's important that we have good role models and examples in the media and literature and then materials we use at school to affirm everyone with their sense of gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. That's the reality. That's the cultural reality uh, in our time and place. That's what the public schools are supposed to communicate to students. Now, understandably, Bible-believing churches respond to that by saying, we can't go there. We can't go down that road. And so... What I want to do today is help you understand why Bible-believing Christians respond in a way that says no to that current reality in our strange times. We're created male and female, and, and the way that God, our purposeful creator, has made us as male and female is designed to be accepted and affirmed. It all starts back in Genesis 1. By the way, I'm sorry, I don't have a, we don't have a PowerPoint here today either. We had some misfire in communicating that. So you may want to take notes or you may have the most fabulous memory of the world and you may keep all this perfectly clear in your head. When you go back to Genesis 1, and, and the account of God's creating the first human beings, our first parents, we read that God said, so let us make mankind in our image 
to, to have dominion over the created order. And then the text says, so God did create humankind. God created humankind in his image. And then with emphasis, it adds male and female. He created them. Now, if you look at the earlier part of Genesis 1, where we have a summary of God's various creative acts about the different parts of creation, typically it just says, God said, let there be, and there was. So it it could have been said just that simply. God said, let there be human beings in my image, and they were. But, But the text emphasizes God's creation of these first human beings in his image, and then it emphasizes male and female. He created them. It's telling us something about the significance of the fact that we don't exist as generic humans. We exist as male or female humans. And then in chapter 2, we have another way of emphasizing this, we probably would have expected that God simply would have created a man and a woman together to start the human race. But what we find in Genesis 2 in the narrative is God created the man, Adam, who existed alone for a while, and God gave to Adam the mandate to care for the garden. And God, God gave to Adam the commands about, about what he ought to eat or not eat in that garden. And then God said, this is not good yet. It's not good that the man would be alone. And so God created an appropriate counterpart for the man. And the appropriate counterpart for the man to fulfill God's mandate for, the, for, the human, for human beings relative to creation was a woman. Not multiple women, not another man, but one woman. And that provides a paradigm, because Genesis 1 and 2 is not just telling us the facts about the creation, but it's, but it's telling us the facts in a way that say this is the way it is to be. In God's world, a man, one man, and one woman to be united as husband and wife. And so when we find sexuality referred to in the creation narrative, we find it has two purposes. Sex has a unitive purpose, namely the the man and the woman leave their birth families behind and are joined together and they become one flesh. So the sexual expression is a, is a physical sign and seal of their commitment to form a new unit as husband and wife. The second purpose of sex we see there is procreative. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Exercise dominion over it. Everyone reading it would understand to be fruitful and multiply means a joining of male and female. Not two males, not two females, but a joining of male and female. And so from the very beginning, when, the, when Scripture speaks about creation, it says, God made us as male and female, and that says something about who we are and how we are to function. 
And that pattern, that significance of male and female being joined together sexually continues throughout the rest of Scripture. So the biblical sense of sexual orientation is heterosexual. So in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, we have specific Levitical laws prohibiting sexual experience between two people of the same sex. And and one of the reasons why we know that is a fundamental moral issue and not just a kind of Levitical purity law is that the punishment for violating that is death. Now, let me make it perfectly clear. I am not suggesting that people caught in homosexual activity in our nation today should be executed. Mosaic law was given by God to serve its purpose in Israel until the arrival of Messiah. The the law of Moses is not to be imposed on every society in the world. In fact, Mosaic law says if, if anybody leads the people of Israel to worship a false god, they're to be executed. So, if we were going to take Mosaic law as the law of the land today, we would be called to execute the mission field. That would not make much sense in view of Jesus' mandate for the church, would it? But the fact that in Mosaic law the punishment is is death says something about it as a fundamental moral issue. We probably all remember the Genesis 19 story of Sodom. And, and indeed, it is obvious that a part of the sin of Sodom was, was its homosexuality, homosexual practice. But here's, here's a text you may never have thought of. In Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, Ezekiel says this about the sins of Sodom. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Now, he calls Sodom Israel's sister because he's, he's speaking as a prophet about Israel's evil. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That's not what you expected, is it? The first thing the prophet talks about regarding Sodom's sin is their their Comfortable, materialistic lifestyle and a refusal to help the poor and needy. So, so the sins of Sodom were not just sexual. In fact, that's not even the first one the prophet mentions. But he does go on to say, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Detestable things or abominations. It's a term used back in Leviticus to describe homosexual practice. And in in the epistle of Jude, near the end of the New Testament, Jude refers back to Sodom and talks about, about their sin in terms of their sexual perversion. It's literally going after a, a, a wrong kind of flesh, choosing the wrong object for sexual desire. In the New Testament, In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about 
sinful lifestyles, which, which indicate people who are not going to inherit God's kingdom. And included in the list are two terms that describe uh, the partners in male homosexual activity. And then in 1 Timothy 1, Paul uses one of those words again, where he's talking about violations of God's basic moral law, sort of going down the pattern of the Ten Commandments. And when he talks about sexual sin, he uses that word to describe male homosexual activity. But the really striking passage is Romans chapter 1. And, and one of the reasons Romans 1 is really important is that in Romans 1, Paul teaches that God has made himself known to all human beings in kind of a, a basic way through the created order. We call it general revelation. In other words, Paul teaches us in Romans 1 that you don't need the Bible, if you're thinking rightly, you don't even need the Bible to understand that males and females belong together sexually. And that implies as well that we recognize what our biology tells us about being male or female. So in Romans 1 verse 18, Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God, he says, has impressed upon the consciousness of all human beings from the very beginning a a sense about his existence as the supreme being, as, as the creator. He's done it, Paul says, via the the things that have been made. In other words, when rational human beings look at the world around us that we experience, They don't rationally say time plus chance because time plus chance, random activity doesn't produce the kind of ordered creation that we inhabit. And so they know that God is there as creator. At the end of the chapter, Paul also talks about people who do these evil things that he catalogs in the chapter not only that they, they, they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. In other words, they understand that, that the intelligent being who created us also rightly tells us how to live. So he's the lawgiver and he's the righteous judge of all the earth. But as the chapter unfolds, Paul says, human beings, thinking especially here of the Gentile pagan world, did not acknowledge the God who made himself known through their experience of the world, 
They didn't glorify him, and they weren't grateful. They didn't give thanks. They didn't accept who they are in this world that God has made. And he talks about how the pagans turned to idolatry and and worshipped creatures and things made by human hands rather than worshipping the true and living God. And so at verse 24 of Romans 1, Paul says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. In other words, Paul says, the sexual impurity to which God has handed over the pagans is, is really a kind of idolatry in which they say, I'm going to be who I want to be, and, and I'm going to live sexually with whomever I want to do that, no matter what God says. And then in verses 26 and 27, Paul turns explicitly to the topic of homosexual practice. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, the text looks quite clear, doesn't it? And yet, every text has to be interpreted. And there are those in our day who would want to say, well, Paul isn't really talking about homosexuality in the way that we know it. Paul isn't talking about loving homosexual faithful unions. He isn't talking about homosexual marriage. He, he's talking about probably the exploitation of slaves by their masters. He's talking about men forcing sex upon Children. Now, Paul could have said all that. Paul knew about all that. Paul was a well-traveled citizen of the Roman world. It was actually, we, we know from the literature available, quite a variety of attitudes towards same-sex activity in the Roman world. Paul would not have been unaware of it. But he doesn't explain what's going on in terms of exploitation, it's not about power of men over their, their slaves or over children. He says the problem is both men and women choosing the wrong object for sexual expression. Women choosing women, men choosing men. The fact that he even talks about women here makes it clear that at his point in history, he's not talking about a power relation problem. He's talking about humans, created male and female, who should recognize the the appropriate object of sexual desire is the other, not the same, and turning away from that in ingratitude rather than accepting the way our intelligent designer has made us. Now, Scripture talks quite explicitly as we see about issues of sexual orientation and the way we live that out. 
It doesn't talk in the same explicit way about the question of transgenderism, about person who is biologically male saying, well, I'm really a female. Like the Baptist pastor at Lorne Park Baptist Church in Mississauga, who recently made that declaration. These are strange times. On the transgender question, I think what we have to say is this. Paul makes the point in Romans 1 that faith in the creator means accepting the way he has made us. And he says that means understanding the way he's made us for sexual orientation. But understanding that males ought to relate sexually to females presumes that the creation also makes clear that we are male and female. And we do see in Scripture in a couple of ways negative statements about those who would act as if they are not the male or female that God made them to be. In Deuteronomy 22, we have a law against cross-dressing. It's the man choosing to dress in a way that says he's female or vice versa. In 1 Corinthians 11, in a very fascinating passage that deserves more time, but I can't do that today, Paul, Paul talks about women in the assembly who need to accept the reality of the veil, which was a first century cultural symbol of, of being a, a modest female. He also talks about hair length there. So, so I think what's going on, Paul is saying, you should accept and affirm cultural symbols of what it means that you are male or female. Gratitude to the creator means accepting ourselves the way the creator has made us. Now, some of you may say, yeah, I'm not convinced. I've lived long enough now to know that the fact that I'm speaking all this in an evangelical Baptist church does not mean that everybody who's listening to me here or wherever, via, via the live stream, agrees. Some of you may question all this. To those who would question it, here, I would say at least this. First of all, if, if you're saying, I'm not really what my biology, what my physiology and anatomy tell me I am, I'm not really that. I, I would want to ask you, well, Well, what exactly tells you that? What is there about you that says you are not what you are biologically? How would you define that? And a part of that question would be, are are you caught up in stereotypes about what it means to be male or female, masculine or feminine? You see, it, it is not true that every female is specially attracted to frilly things or has difficulty with math and science or doesn't know how to change the oil in a car. I don't even change my own oil, so you know it's, it's just not a litmus test for anything. Being male doesn't mean that, that, that you're really all caught up in sports. Not even hockey. I mean, I, 
I confess, I don't understand why you wouldn't like sports. But then I was named Stan after Stan the Man Musial, the Hall of Fame outfielder of the St. Louis Cardinals. So I've known sports from the time I was sucking on a pacifier. So, I mean, I, I, I don't identify with, with a man, I suppose, who doesn't like sports. But you don't have to like sports to be a male. You don't have to be into hot rods and, and you know, into reading all, everything about the latest and greatest cars to be male. Etc., etc. So don't get caught up in stereotypes. And, and for those who would push back about same sex attraction, there are a number of things to be said, but here's one. There, there can be a kind of special attraction, a kind of intimate relationship with people of the same gender that isn't sexual in nature. The great biblical example of this is noted in 2 Samuel 1.26 when we talk about, when the scripture talks about David and Jonathan. And it tells us that David's love for Jonathan was greater than his love for any woman. But it wasn't a sexual relationship. One of the, the casualties, one of the negative effects of, of the current debates about sexuality, I think, is, is the, the loss of really close male friendship. Probably not as great a problem among, among women, but certainly among men. I mean, I mean we're fearful that if, um, I mean, if, if I have lunch with another guy in a restaurant, people may be saying, hmm, I wonder about those two. I mean, I still remember once I was at a conference with, uh, and I, w- I was eating dinner with a theologian friend at the conference. It was actually in a Mexican restaurant on, on the Riverwalk in San Antonio. If you ever get the chance, you should do it. But Gene and I were sitting at the table, just the two of us, and, and a strolling Mexican minstrel came by a troubadour singing his songs with his guitar. And as he stood doing that at our table, I, I confess, I thought, what does everybody think? <laughs> I'm not sure. But Gene and I are really good friends. And, and, and I don't want to lose that because of concerns about the sexual attraction issue. So you may feel a, a special kind of attraction to people of the same gender, but it doesn't have to take sexual form. And we also need to remember that sexual purity means only sexual activity within heterosexual marriage. But for those who experience same-sex attraction, that can be worked out in more than one way can be worked out in the life of singleness. Sam Alberry is one of the great um, evangelical examples of that. If, if you've never seen his book, Is God Anti-Gay? You really ought to get it and read it. Small book, very potent. But then there are others who, who experience some kind of same-sex attraction, but who marry 
another person of the opposite sex. I I just finished recently uh, with some friends reading a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Contemporary book, really excellent book dealing with current objections to Christian faith. And she just straightforwardly refers to the fact that that early on she felt same-sex attraction but recognized that was not a disposition to be acted out sexually. And so she's married. Uh, The well-known evangelical writer Rosaria Butterfield, I think, falls into that same camp. So the fact that you feel a special attraction to other people doesn't mean that that has to be lived out in a sexual way. All right, to to bring it all together, I've argued that Scripture says we should know by both creation and God's revealed word that being created male and female tells us who we are, what our biology does tell us that we're male or female, and that also tells us who is the proper object of our sexual desire, and that's a person of the opposite sex. So there are two groups of people who may be listening. One, you may agree, and two, you may disagree. If you agree, here's what I would say to you. Be willing to affirm what is true, even if it is culturally difficult. Even if you get some major pushback in the wider world. Been there, done that. I... I'm not talking apart from my own experience here. I had fascinating experience a few months ago. Can't tell you the whole story, but it created an ex- ongoing email exchange with a university professor who essentially said, well, he said in so many words, look, you people have lost and, and, and we no more tolerate your views about sexuality than we tolerate people who affirm slavery. But I have to go on affirming what is true. But as I try to speak that truth, I have to speak that truth with grace. I have to remember that our Lord was full of grace and truth. And I need to remember what we just sang a while ago. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Matt Boswell's wonderful contemporary song. Where sin abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. Sit down this afternoon and read Titus 3, 1 to 5, where Paul tells Titus what to teach the believers on the island of Crete about how to live in their very pagan society. And among other things he says, teach them to treat everyone with kindness and humility. Why? Because God was kind and gracious toward us. That's what God is like. And if God has been kind and gracious toward me, how can I not be kind and gracious toward others who may presently be his enemies, but people whom God loves 
And so as I speak truth, I need to do it with humility and grace. That combination is not easy, it's just godly. Now to those who still are saying, I don't agree. I would say to you, you should, if you, if you can believe in a, in a creator God, then that God is purposeful. But believe what your creation tells you. Believe what your chromosomes and your anatomy tell you. And recognize that has been believed essentially by all the cultures in the world throughout all of human history prior to our own novelties in our revisionist age. But here's the other thing I would say if you disagree and say, I'm sorry, I'm going my own way. Accepting heterosexuality is not the most important thing. The crucial thing is that you acknowledge Jesus, Messiah, as Savior and Lord. And God's mercy is more than our many sins. Forgiveness is real. The transforming work of God's Spirit is real. Believe the good news about salvation from our guilt and our spiritual inability through Christ. I'm not saying, Scripture never says that faith in Christ just solves all problems overnight. But it does bring you into fellowship with God through his Son, and it does bring you into fellowship with the rest of us who acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And we are here to stimulate you and to be stimulated by you along the path of discipleship. As we've been saying about other issues for the last several months, we're in this together. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are our creator. You are our intelligent and purposeful creator. And so help us to live in gratitude as you have made us. Lord, by your spirit, open our eyes to understand the beauty of your revelation, of the way of life to which you call us, and by your spirit, enable us to practice it. Enable us who have called Jesus Lord to live as he did, full of grace and truth. In his name we ask this. Amen.